Uh, if you're new or visiting or you came because of the flyer we sent out, we just want to say thank you for taking the... I've got a chance to visit with several of you. And thank you for coming and checking us out. And we hope it feels like home. And we hope you feel comfortable and welcome here. And it uh, feels like family. So uh, wanted to be able to say that. We're starting a new series. It's called um, Marriage MD. And if that's the reason uh, you came this morning, we're grateful. So let me go over just what we're going to cover in the next nine weeks so you can get a picture. Um, so we're going to start this morning uh, with a picture from the Bible. But then next Sunday, we're going to talk about singles. Uh, it, big on Pam and mine's heart. I was single till I was 38. Pam was single till she's 32. So we think we bring something to the equation. And she's agreed to share with me next week. All right, so that should be fun. So if you want to see uh, my wife and see what she looks like, you can come next Sunday, and uh, she's agreed to share. And uh, and so, but we experienced a lot and learned a lot over those years, and and then being married, looking back. So um, we just want to say, if you're single, you do not have a disease. All right, you're not a second-rate person in the kingdom. And sometimes when you do marriage things, you're like, ah, here's a marriage thing, you know, right? But hey, marriage is part of the church. We got to cover it as well. So hang in there. We'll we'll share with you. And you can see the rest that we're going to go through, uh, and uh, the topics that we're going to cover. Now, a couple things. One is that um, there are very few perfect marriages in the world. All right. And uh, and so there's all kinds of tension, or you may different seasons of where you are at. Uh, and so we just want, I want you to know I'm sensitive to that. And, uh, I also want you to know that there, you can never hit everything perfectly, right? You can never cover all the topics well. So that's why like we're offering the marriage class, uh, on Sunday night as well, just because you can go more in depth with it. So, uh, be aware of that. All right. So let's, uh, begin this one. We should pray. Let's do that. Father in heaven, as we come this morning, uh, I've been putting some thought and I hope that I have lined up with your heart and your spirit. And uh, as we talk about marriage, Lord, and our culture, obviously numerous challenges that exist just with the word, let alone the idea. And so uh, as we come this morning, we pray for your favor. We ask that uh, wherever we are, you would be engaging in a conversation with your spirit and that you can have a dialogue and uh, we may get halfway through the message, Lord, and you may take off with somebody and have a conversation that you just want to have with them. That is totally your prerogative, and you are not only free to do that, we welcome you to do that here. And so we, we open it up to you, and uh, may you illuminate, may you reveal things, and we give that to you in your name. Amen. All right. So I want to start with two ideas this morning that will, will get us thinking. Here's the doctor's office. All of you have been to the doctors, and probably some of us should have been to the doctors more than what we have been. And uh, uh, when you go to the doctor, so in our country, right, this is America, and uh, in our country, you can uh, live any way you want. You can drink anything you want. You can eat anything you want. Nowadays, you can smoke anything you want, all right? It's all out there. And so you can kind of crash and burn through the culture and through your life. But when you go to the doctor's office, uh, especially if he's a new doctor, uh, the very first thing he's going to do is establish a baseline. Right. And what what I mean by a baseline is he's going to run numbers on you. He's going to do like blood pressure. Right. And 120 over 80. Yeah, we all hit that perfectly. And uh, he's going to hit things like... um, your weight measured against obesity rules, right? And he's going to measure cholesterol under 190. We're all there. 
And uh, he's going to do blood tests nowadays. They, they do the blood test so they can check for PSA levels. They can check for hormone levels. They can check for um, sugar, for diabetes and all that kind of thing. And so they can do your blood work. And from your blood work, they can kind of know where you are measured against a baseline of what's normal for your age or uh, for your bracket and whether you're male or female, that sort of thing, uh, ethnicity, all that sort of stuff. And he will tell you what you need to do. Now, as most of us found out, you can either make adjustments to his suggestions, right? He can say, here's the things you're going to have to do. We can either cooperate with that or we can just keep plowing forward to our own peril and risk. Uh, and, and many of us do that. We, in the doctor's office, we're very teachable. And uh, we nod our heads and, yes, I'll do that. And then we walk out and promptly forget everything he told us till the next time we go back. And here's what you learn is that the consequences don't go away. Anybody notice that? They don't go away. They just um, they end up getting more complicated and more debilitating. So somewhere in there, you're going to cry uncle and actually start doing what the doctor's telling you to do. And that should be to your uh, mutual benefit. But we've all seen people who just ignore it, right? We probably had relatives or parents or friends who, ah, heck with that, and they just kept plowing ahead. And we've watched them kind of implode with health issues because they refused uh, to do what the doctor told them to do. So those baselines, the idea here is that the baselines are not suggestions, all right? They're not uh, if you would like to. They are actual things that you have to measure against so that you know how you're doing. So keep that picture in mind. I want you to have that picture in mind. Then the second picture I want you to have in mind is one of blueprints this morning. Here's a picture. This is the McLean house. Anybody know where that is? Okay, this is the McLean house. This is an Appomattox. Walt knows where it is. He's not in his head because he's in the military. All right, this is in Appomattox, Virginia. This is the site of where the Civil War surrender uh, happened, where General Lee surrendered to General Grant on April, um, what was the date here? April 9th, 1865. The reason I'm knowledgeable about that is Pam and I had a chance to visit that when we brought McKinsey to college in Virginia because it was about 25 miles away. And so we went over there and got to see the whole village. And they have recreated the whole village uh, the way it looked in 1865. Uh, Now, here's an interesting point. This provides a great illustration for us this morning as well. This house was eventually totally dismantled. right. And the reason it was dismantled is the problem with Appomattox is two things. One, if you go there and read the history on it, is that there were no big battles fought there. There were a couple little skirmish things, but pretty much the surrender happened. And when the surrender happened, everybody went home and Appomattox was kind of forgot as a village. And secondly, it wasn't in a very good site. The real uh, Appomattox was about four miles away where the railroad station was and the train tracks came through. So this place kind of became a byword and a, a, a side road kind of deal. And so uh, the house itself was totally dismantled in 1893. So about 30 years later, it was dismantled. And why it was dismantled is some New York speculators wanted to take it apart and then take it to New York City and rebuild it as a war museum. 
All right. And so they had the idea that let's let's take this back to the capital. And a lot of people will visit it. Well, pretty much what they did was uh, they tore it all apart. And the stuff sat in piles, but then the plans fell through and nothing really happened. And so the pile sat there for 30 years. And you know what happens if you do that, right? The wood rots and the stuff gets carried away. And after about 30, 40 years, there was really nothing left, just this decayed lump of stuff there. In 1954, more than 60 years later, uh, there was a plan suggested that they make a national park out of the little village of Appomattox. And that gained great traction and actually more than any of the other things had. And the land was designated as a natural natural park. And uh, the McLean House was rebuilt. If you go there today, the village looks almost exactly the way it did in 1865. That is the house right there. This is the McLean House today. All right? So if you take a look and you just look at the... You can see the balcony and that kind of stuff. And if you notice, it's all—it's an exact replica. And one of the questions was, how can you build an exact replica 60 years later when even all the timbers and the brick and stuff have been gone and carted off and have rotted away? Well, they were able to rebuild the house. And by the way, the courthouse, which had burned to the ground in 1892, and the village, uh, which had fallen apart because, like I mentioned, it wasn't, Nobody really paid attention to it, so everybody kind of moved out of it. But how did they do that? Well, they had three things that they had that allowed them to rebuild this um, from what it used to look like. First was they had pictures. Because the surrender of the Civil War took there, there were a lot of pictures that had been taken during the war and during the ceremony, so they knew what the village and what this house looked like. Secondly, they had county records. All right, and in the South, they take really meticulous county records. And so in the South, they had more pictures and they had descriptions and the plots and the land and where everything was and the names of it. So they were able to go back and find all that stuff. But lastly, what they had was blueprints. And where they got the blueprints from is when this speculating group wanted to move that house from Appomattox to Washington, D.C., they made blueprints and specifications of the building. In other words, they measured and did the whole thing so they would know exactly how to rebuild, much like you take a Erector set or Lego set apart, right? They had a, a instructions of how to put it all back together. And so because they had the blueprints, they were able to take and put this house uh, where it existed and they, oops, where it existed and they looked at pictures like this, they were able to take and recreate the building like this. Now I want to use those two ideas this morning, a baseline and then blueprints to talk about a, a biblical view of marriage. All right? So when we're talking about a biblical view of marriage, what does the Bible say? What are we looking at? Now there's a lot of views on marriage and a lot of takes on marriage in our culture today, right? And uh, many think it's a worn-out institution that's no longer relevant, sweet but archaic should be redone. It doesn't work anymore. Uh, others think it's totally unnecessary and should really be torn down like the McLean house and used as a museum piece. All right, let's just hang it up as a relic and go visit it because it really does that anymore uh, sort of thing. Many are redefining it, shaping it to their worldview. 
But if you're going to do a Christian series on marriage, all right, the question arises, what is the biblical baseline? And what are the blueprints that are the foundation for all the different topics that we're going to cover in the rest of this series? And so the question is, what are the blueprints and what are the baselines from a biblical perspective? Well, let's start with two important baselines. Baseline number one that we're going to look at um, is here. Marriage exists in the context of creation. We don't often think of that. I want to walk through that a little bit this morning. But marriage exists in the context of creation. And the second baseline we're going to look at is that marriage exists in the context of the fall. Very important to understand that. Very important to know that. Uh, Most people don't think a lot about that today as well either. And so... Uh, let's start with the first one, that marriage exists in the context of creation. From a biblical perspective, one of the biggest mistakes we make is believing that marriage is a human idea or a human institution. In other words, we came up with the idea. We're the ones, uh, cultures just evolved and started to create and they got together. And so they started to call that thing marriage. And then when they started to call it marriage, they thought they should formalize some of it. And so they formalized some of it. And then when Christianity came along, it overlaid its stuff on top of it. And then we have what we call Christian marriages. What the biblical perspective is very different is that marriages actually exist within the context of creation. The Bible points to the fact that marriage uh, begins with creation. God created Adam and Eve. All right? This stands in stark contrast to the whole evolutionary push of our culture. All right? Here's a profound idea. What the Bible's saying is that marriage is God's idea. It's not a human idea. It's his idea. In other words, he's the author and the architect of this thing called marriage, and it finds its fulfillment in the context of his creation. And so often uh, I mention this to couples, and they're like, I never thought of that. And they realize they're stepping into something much bigger than they realized. And that's what I'm trying to get them to do is is to be able to see that. God first created Adam And then out of a rib taken from Adam, he created Eve as a helper and complement to Adam. And out of that union comes another creation. What's that? Children. Right? And children reflect something as well. So procreation on a human level mimics and patterns creation on a divine level. When we have children, we are actually walking in the footsteps of God. Because God's first creative act was creating man and woman. And most people never think about that either. So let's look at the blueprint then. If these are the baseline, what is the, what is the blueprint? So start in Genesis 1, and then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So notice something very significant here. Man, we, us, okay, people, we are created in the image of God. That's repeated three times in this passage. That it's different than the other creation. That man himself, people, reflects something about God. 
because they're created in the image of God. And so we're different than the other animal creation. We are above, in a sense, because we reflect God in a way that the other creation doesn't. And therefore, if we're married, we reflect something whether we know it or not. That make sense? You do if you're single as well. But I'm talking about the context of marriage. We've got to get out of this idea that I decided to get married and therefore I'm married and therefore that's what marriage is about. We need to understand marriage is a different context of reflecting God because we are made, we are uniquely created in his image and that image is male and female. It is from a design standpoint, an architectural imprint. Okay. In other words, it's something bigger than us. Just as a building reflects its architect, so we reflect our creator. Let's take a a little farther in Genesis 2. It says, Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. One of the great challenges of the modern scientific community is to create life. They go after it with a vengeance and have tried every possible concoction and oozes and soups and enzymes and are trying to create life on every level because uh, they want to believe that life comes from us. But the Bible says our life comes from God, that the reason we have life uh, comes from God. And then the second part here, The Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. If you go on that passage, it says, So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. Apparently he had an anesthesiologist up there with him. right? And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he had taken out of man, and he brought her to the man. In other words, the idea here is she is uniquely fashioned uniquely fashioned to complement, match the other creation. In other words, like two jigsaw pieces go together, man and woman go together, and God created that design and created that order. The man then said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And that is why man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Adam and and his wife were both naked, and it says, and they felt no shame. Now, if you go running around naked in our culture, you're going to notice, you know, be noticed and uh, feel some weird feelings, right? But you notice that when a husband and wife are together, there's no shame, right? Because it's meant to be complimentary. Think about it. If you're married, you don't, you aren't awkward when you're together. Now, if you talk about it, do you get awkward? If you had to do it in public, you'd be really awkward. But when you're together alone in private, it's not awkward at all. Okay, so where did the awkwardness then, where did the clumsiness with that uh, come into play? Well, just as marriage has beginning in the context of creation and the uniting of a man and wife becoming one flesh was and is God's orchestrated and God designed, uh, there's a second uh, baseline here. Marriage exists in the context of the fall. When a woman saw the fruit of the tree, and now we're jumping into a conversation here early. There was a conversation going on, and the serpent asked the woman, why don't you eat that? Because we're told not to. Why? Because we'll die. You certainly won't die. And in the midst of this 
whole conversation. It says, the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. So she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then both of them were op- both of the, the excuse me, then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized that they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So the second baseline that marriage is measured against is that marriage must also be measured in the context of the fall. All of a sudden they knew something was wrong. What was normal before, what was okay before, suddenly something had tipped. And it says their eyes were open. They could see what they couldn't see before. And through and in that first marriage, a choice was made to operate outside of God's instructions and commands. God's blueprint for marriage and families. And that deviation resulted in what theologians have labeled as the fall. Guys, you go, well, why did we get tagged for that? Because it was her doing. Why didn't God just deal with her? Well, look back at that verse there. It says uh, she ate some, took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband. Many people say, where was Adam when this whole thing came down? Where was he? Right there with her. Right there. And guys, that's why God continually talks to us about leadership, because our tendency is to abdicate. It happened in the garden. It's happened through history. That's our tendency. And so we are responsible because we said nothing. Okay? Adam said nothing. And it created what we know now as the fall. Sin for the first time had not only entered the human race, but it had entered marriage. Does that make sense? Sin is not separate from marriage just because we fall in love doesn't mean that we won't experience the effects of sin because why you have two sinners marrying each other and those of us who've gotten married realize oh my goodness i have a sin nature okay oh my goodness my spouse has a sin nature oh my goodness okay uh al robert has the saying that you never really know who you marry till you marry him there's a lot of truth in that in there Because most of us don't even recognize our own sin nature. And what happens is when we're single, we can do different behaviors, but they're not really noticeable by other people because if like we want to throw a fit or pout, we go home, slam the door, run in our bedroom, throw the covers over our head and we can whine or do whatever. And nobody notices when you're married, it follows you into the bedroom. Right? Yeah, and then you go, ah, get out of here. What do you mean? No, I have a license to be here, right? And it, it just changes the whole concept of, of the thing. From then till now and into the future, all are affected by it. In other words, it's systemic. All are affected by what the Bible calls sin and the sin nature. Right? Uh, What that means is we miss the mark. We do not hit the target the way God wants us to. And nowhere is this more evident or more impactful than in marriage. Because it's all on the line at that point. Many of us in this room have been horrendously affected by the choices of those of whom we trusted the most. There are a number of us here this morning who are divorced, who are not divorced by choice. They were not given the option or allowed to speak into it. And so we have wrecked the fruit of another person's choices and it has wrecked a whole fabric of things and and we know what that looks like. 
So when we talk about the original blueprint against those baselines, what we're talking about is that God created man and woman and that marriage brings a man and a wife together. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become what the Bible calls one flesh. Okay? A unit, inseparable, uh, is the picture from the Bible. Another part of the original blueprint is that marriage is covenantal. Marriage is not a contract. Marriage is a covenant. A contract is uh, I provide money for services rendered. So if I want you to fix my faucet, if I want you to paint my house, if I want you to mow my yard, I enter into a contract with you. We negotiate. Uh, You agree to do this job this way. I agree to pay this money in this time frame. And, uh, And then when the job is done, we decide if the job was done satisfactorily, right? And then there's some haggling going on there and then uh, services are paid. That's a contract for services due. A covenant is different. A covenant has to do with um, what we find here in Malachi. It says, you cover the Lord's altars with tears. And this is talking about a divorce situation here in the Bible. It says, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why doesn't he? Because the Lord has a witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife. And the phrase at the end of that is your wife by covenant. Okay. Notice it does not say she is your wife by contract. It is wife by covenant. So covenant is a very important idea in the Bible. God is seen as a covenant-keeping God, a covenant-making God. And that when we enter into covenant, we are entering into covenant with each other the same way God enters into covenant with us, much the same way he entered into covenant with Abraham. And so it's an agreement. According to Unger's Bible Dictionary, a covenant is a solemn agreement between two or more parties who bind themselves to certain agreements and agree to fulfill certain conditions. Right? We are in agreement. An old term that's used is we're in league with each other. Right? Uh, we don't use that language anymore, but it means we have agreed to be on the same team and to aim at the same, same goal. A covenant is based on agreement of the heart. And what is the desired outcome of a marriage covenant? Well, the desired outcome of a marriage covenant is godly offspring. You're going, well, where did you pull that from? If you have your Bibles and you're looking in Malachi, look at chapter 2, verse 15. It says, Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? In other words, when God brings a couple together, he does something by his Spirit. I often tell uh, engaged couples, I said, You know, look, here's the deal. Uh, I'm only as good as the information given me, and you can lie to me. Because I'm not all-knowing and all-seeing and and you can pull wool over my eyes and I really don't know if you're doing things right or not. But let me tell you why it would be worth your time to do this right. I said, because one of the things you're looking for when you get married is you are looking for the Lord's blessing. Isn't that true? And I've never had a couple say no. I've never had a in 35 years and I've done hundreds and hundreds of weddings. I've never had a couple say, no, we don't want the Lord's blessing. We just want to get married. And I've always said, yeah, that would be a good thing. 
Yeah? That would be a good thing. I would like to, like to have the Lord's blessing. So, all right, here's the way you have to do that. If you run your relationship sexually pure, what you're seeking is the Lord's blessing at your wedding. And when you do that, if you do that behind the scenes, whether people know or not, you are going to get something at your wedding that you cannot buy. Okay, no amount of decorations or money put out or things like that will buy what you're going to gain if you do it right. Because if you do it right, you will have the manifest presence of the Lord at your wedding and people will know the difference. They will know that this is done right. And you will have honor from the Lord in doing this. And many couples go, oh, seriously? And I go, yeah, seriously, man. And they wrestle with it, right? Because it's like, you know, a big difficult challenge when you're single and you're wanting to get married it just uh, you know snitch some cookies from the cupboard it it wouldn't hurt anything and uh and yet what you find is many of you've been to, and i would ask you you've been to weddings you ever been to a wedding where all the right words are said all the right things are done and just bleh, bleh, like something wasn't right but have you been to ones where wow what was that wow did you sense the Lord in that thing? And, and you come away with this. It says here in Malachi that he made them one and with a portion of his spirit in their union. In other words, God validates these things. And what was the one God seeking? And Malachi 2.15 says godly offspring. In other words, there's something designed about marriage. There's something that God's looking for in marriage. Not only is good for the couple, but it's good for the kids. The kids pick up on something. They pick up on there's more than just mom and dad in this gig. There's God's doing something in this gig and it catches their attention. So then Malachi goes on to say this. So guard yourselves in your spirit. Why should we guard ourselves? Because there's a lot of things that war against fidelity. There's a lot of things that war against purity. There's a lot of things that war against faithfulness. Uh, The grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. There's a lot of things that pull or leer or do all kinds of things in marriage. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. This is obviously taking the male side of this, right? We all know marriages that the it's been from the female side or the male side that the divorce has come. For a man who does not love his wife, but divorces her, said the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence. With violence is how God describes it. Now, we don't often think of divorce as violent, although we do know it can get violent, right? A lot of yelling and screaming and weeping and all kinds of things, thrashing. But it can get very violent. Um, He says... The one who does this covers his garment with violence. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Well, who is the violence done to? In other words, when when a divorce happens, who's the violence? Who is it violent towards? Well, obviously it's violence toward the couple. But I want to suggest the children. Right? I want to suggest the kids. Now, in this context, I'm not talking as a head pastor. I'm talking as a youth pastor. I was a youth guy for 18 and a half years. And I can't tell you how many parents I said, you know what, Steve, it'll be okay. The kids will be fine. They'll actually be better if we're not together. And I said, look, you can, uh, I use some farm terminology, you can sell me any of that package you want, but don't tell me that. And I'd 
my wall and, and there's hundreds of kids on that list. You can see it up in my office today. And I can go and I can point to the kids who went through divorce and I can show you what happened to them and how it rent the fabric of their life. There's no such thing as a good divorce. There's no such thing as it doesn't affect anybody. It deeply affects the fabric and the spirit of a kid, particularly how it turns them against God. Where were you, God, when this happened? Why didn't you do anything? Well, they don't need you either. And they walk off. And now you've got not only a rent marriage, but you have kids who are shattered and by it. By the miracle and grace of God, God calls many of us back and brings us back. But know that that is the great grace of God, not what would normally happen. Because what normally happens is kids just get shattered. It is really hard to recover from that. If you talk to people, if they ever just the polite, you know, hi, I'm fine thing. Uh, when I ask people in my room, I ask, hey, have either of you come through a divorced family? Yeah. I said, well, how did that affect you? Oh, I'm okay. Not much. Really. Can we talk about that for a minute? And once you start unpeeling it, all kinds of layers come out and all kinds of brokenness come out in that. Also, an individual blueprint, marriage is based on authority and mutual submission. All right. Uh, authority is something we struggle with, right? We have a hard time. We like authority if we get to tell others what to do. We don't like authority if they get to tell us what to do. Now, can you see a problem with that in marriage? Right? Of course, none of us have ever struggled with that, but... In other church, it is rumored that there's been problems, right? Don't you tell me what to do, right? And we find submission hard. Submission is difficult. Uh, It's hard together. So in Ephesians here, it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body... And is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ. Now, pause for a second. I always find this quite humorous. How well does the church submit to Christ? Watch history, right? Watch us. How well do we actually submit? Not so good, right? So the idea here is that that should be a deeply incorporated aspect into our spirits. And we still wrestle in the sin nature. And it's hard for us to come around to that. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to everything in everything to their husbands. All right. Now, that's the wife part. The man part, we're called to love. So wives are called to respect and submit. Guys are called to love. Why? Because it's hard to submit and it's hard to love. Guys, that's what we're not good at. We're not good at being loving. We're harsh in our tone. We're exacting. We, we crush the spirit of the, our wives or our kids around us. And we don't even know we're doing it. Because we just get harsh. We're locked into the agenda at the moment. But it's talking about something here that's more important than just marriage. It's talking about here that Christ is the head of the church. Okay? In other words, there's something, a, a bigger picture rolling out here than just us and just our marriages. There's this picture of this has something to do with eternity. This has something to do with Jesus as the head of the church. And you say, well, how do you know that? Well, look at this uh, Ephesians a little later. Uh, marriage is a both a reflection, but it is also a mystery. 
Okay? It was designed to point people to something. It was designed to get us to look past ourselves to the bigger picture. In Ephesians 31 and 32, it says, Therefore the man shall leave his father and mother. So the Apostle Paul's taking in Ephesians, taking that verse from Genesis and pulling it and putting it into Ephesians in this context of marriage. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. So in many ways, the Bible pictures Jesus as a husband. You can find the terminology all over the Bible. Okay? Uh, it pictures Jesus as a husband. So when God instituted marriage, he was going to point to something way later in the future that would be even more significant than marriage itself. And that is the issue of the coming of Jesus Christ, the coming, his coming as Savior and Lord, and his coming to rescue people, which would then be called the church, which is called his wife. Or his bride is the more proper biblical terminology. All right? And it points to a rescue. Why does that picture work? Because guys, don't we all have the gene in us that we were built to rescue? Right? The knight in shining armor res- rescues the damsel in distress. Okay? Now women today, we go, I don't need your rescue. Yeah, I know. But it's a great picture. Okay? We have that component, don't we, guys? We have that component. Where does that component come from? It comes from a picture that God started back in creation with the design of the gospel in men and the gospel in women. And that he was pointing to the coming of a Savior and he's using the picture of marriage to capture that picture and say there's something about marriage that is a profound mystery. It's much bigger than us it has to do with the kingdom of god and it has to do with the future you know one of the things that's hard for those of us who are married is to realize that in heaven there won't be any marriage and we're like ah how does that work i mean uh it will be so far beyond what we experience here and it will be connected to jesus christ as the husband all right And so God is using this whole picture, this biblical picture of marriage. So as we come into the topics, as we walk in the next several weeks, as we talk about singles, as we talk with you next week, and we talk about your singleness, you are not second-class citizens. I just want to underline that again. Okay, you're just fine. Jesus loves you. You're in great shape, all right? But we're going to talk about singleness week, and then we go through trust and fighting and those other issues. They will all be in this context of that marriage is part of God's creation and that we're dealing with the fall, all right? Well, let's pray and then we'll worship some more. Father, as we think about this, there are things that are pretty normal. We understand a lot of things. Those of us who have married a long time kind of know the ropes, so to speak. But there are things way beyond us. Built into your picture of creation, there's things you built into the picture of marriage that are far, far beyond just what we understand. And you gave hints. You, you put seeds in place to plant ideas uh, as we talk about this whole picture of marriage. And what I've tried to do this morning, Lord, is go after the basic foundation pieces of what you put in place. And I hope it was helpful for my friends, and I hope that it uh, gets them thinking along those lines, not only about their marriage, but about you.
And what's the bigger picture? What are we called to do? And uh, we seek you for that. We ask for your help with that. We know our marriages aren't perfect. We know our friends, others struggle as well. We know uh, there's lots of struggles that go on in our culture. Lord, next week you're going to talk to singles. There's lots of struggles when you're single. And to learn some of those well before you get married is great wisdom. Pray next week will be helpful for that. So we lift this, this and the series up to you. The class is in the evening. And we ask for favor in your name. Amen.